0: Welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast, where we venture behind the headlines to figure out what's really happening with the issues of the day, with the help of expert guests from the worlds of politics and culture. This is our first episode for 2015, and we're joined by former independent politicians Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott. Your host is anthropologist and broadcaster Sally Warhaft.
1: Uh, A bit of a late start for the Fifth Estate this year for any of you who are regulars. Um, I've been on maternity leave and it is a great pleasure to be back tonight for the first uh, for the year. And uh, I also have two babies at home, twins, and it was... uh, Thank you. (laughs) Now I'm blushing. Uh, It's especially a pleasure to leave them at home for the first time... (laughs) and have two big twins yeah, to come and is. talk to. <laughs> so uh, please give uh, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakshot another very warm welcome. <laughs> They are, of course, um, incredibly well-known to you all, but um, uh, Tony was an independent MP in both New South Wales and the federal parliaments for a total of 22 years um, and was decisive uh, as that independent in both of those houses of parliament. And uh, he's lived in rural New South Wales, I think within about 20 kilometres of where he was born uh, all his life, a true local member. And uh, a primary producer. He's now also an author. Uh, he's written this terrific memoir, Windsor's Way. Rob Oakeshott is the independent member... ..was the independent member sorry, yes. for Lyon, <laughs> uh, from 2008 to 2013. And prior to that, he was a National Party member in the New South Wales Legislative Assembly he left the party to become an independent. He's also written a memoir. They really are a bit twinny. And uh, (laughs) it's called The Independent Member from Line. And, uh, well, welcome to Melbourne, both of you, and thank you for travelling so far. I want to start with the um, experience of gaining the balance of power. And really what it was was gaining power. Um, after uh, being on your lonesomes for some time. And uh, you both describe the 17 agonising days when you were making your decisions um, about who to put in power. Um, I enjoyed those days. (laughs) (laughs) I felt that, you know, the machinery of government just kept rolling along, and I wondered if, in fact, we needed politicians fronting at all. Everything seemed to keep working, but um, you obviously have a different perspective, and uh, I'd like to hear from each of you, perhaps, Tony, you can go first, about your reflections of of what it was like to become all-powerful.
2: Well, thank you, Sally. Uh, Thank you to the audience uh, for being here and uh, good to be back with my mate. I don't call him Oakshot, I call him Buckshot. Uh, (laughs) uh, 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 It's it's good to see him again. uh, I'd had a similar experience in the State Parliament uh, in New South Wales back in 1991 uh, when it was my vote that had put the then Premier, Nick Greiner, Liberal Premier, uh, into power. So I'd I'd had that experience, but I I don't think even that prepared me for uh, the uh, 2010 outcome. But during that 17 days, I think, and I pay great regard to Rob in in relation to this, we established, uh, on the basis of what he did, a process to work through. And I think establishing that process, while all the numbers were being counted and seats were being bedded down, et cetera we had a process that we could actually focus on rather than uh, all of the advice that were being given in terms of what we should and shouldn't do. So, uh, and, I, and I think at the end of that process, uh, uh, the decision that, that we made, I don't have any problem with it at all in terms of you know, looking back on it, but it was that process that was very important in the determination. There were a whole range of issues we might get into a bit later. Exciting time.
1: Rob, What about for you? You woke up the day after the election with a cracking hangover. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about
0: those days for you. Uh, Yes, and hello to Melbourne as well, and thanks for having both of us here, and it's good to see Lynn Windsor here as well. Indeed. um, And Mm. to catch up with old friends. Um, I found that period enormously exhausting. Um, On behalf of all of us who were caught in the middle of it, I think everyone in their own way took it as seriously as you could. Um, but there was vaudeville going on all around us, um, particularly coming from uh, a lot of the commentary, a lot of the media. Um, managing a lot of that um, was uh, taking up an awful lot of time and you just didn't have the skills for them um, with the tricks that they were throwing at you on a daily basis, so sounded, my lasting memory is exhaustion from that period. Your
1: description of those days, uh, particularly Rob, there's a there's a sort of a, a frantic, um, and and there's something different in, in to what Tony seemed to describe in what you went through. I thought,
0: yeah. Look, to be honest, I think uh, I was Tony was very kind to me just then. I. To be very kind in response, I was very lucky to have Tony there because he had been through it before as he just said um, and was that forever calming influence that don't worry too much about a lot of what's going on around you and just focus on um, what you need to do. Um, I'm a natural worrier so um, I was worrying a lot about what was going on around us um, and getting frustrated by it, surprised by it, um, caught out by it at times. so, you know, I, I think they were two different experiences, even though the perception was um, we were back-to-back the whole way through.
1: Is it a bit like how you might imagine being just given too much money, might be like, to suddenly be able to decide on behalf of an entire country who's going to form a government? <clears throat> it comes down to individuals and, and their good character.
2: Well, I didn't say it in that light. I, you know, the... Electorate voted, and it was a draw, obviously, 50-50, so people, some people were going to be happy and some were going to be unhappy with whatever decision uh, was made. I think we worked through it pretty methodically. Uh, We looked at the, the issues, the important issues that are out there, policy issues, the regional issues in particular, but the national issues as well, and... Very importantly, that period of time gave us the opportunity to look at the characters of these people. You now, one of the, the decisions that could have been made—it didn't side with anybody—and I don't think people have properly explored that either. What that would have meant, in a sense, was that uh, Julia Gillard would have walked into the Parliament, and she would have been Prime Minister until she had, someone had the numbers for innovative no confidence against her. And the other scenario that. particularly when Bob Catter decided (coughs) to uh, side with the coalition. And the only reason the three of us really wanted to get together on that final day was to see uh, where everybody was going. That after Bob had decided what he was doing, it was 74 all. Uh, If uh, Buckshot had gone one way and I'd gone the other... yeah, you know, we're in this situation again, which may well have led to Gillard walking into the Parliament until she faced a no-confidence motion. We, uh, thinking back on it, I think w- what we were trying to do was trying to establish some stability of governance during that period. So it was important to either side with one side or the other, so that the community actually had uh, a, an idea of whether this thing could live long enough. And i have got to pay credit to Julia Gillard, I think in terms of the way she dealt with that, and I know she had difficulties with a, par- with a party, but the way she dealt with it uh, uh,
1: reinforced, in my view, that we'd made the right choice. What about Bob uh, Catter? Because you were triplets for a little while until you weren't the three amigos, and um, you had to work together and Tony you describe him in your book as a bit like a barking dog chasing cars from behind a fence and then one day the gate was opened <laughs> 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 Rob you you tell us your your take on Bob
0: Come on Archer <laughs> <laughs> Look I try and talk nicely of people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's informal in here. Yeah, yeah OK, just... amongst friends. Mm. Don't tell anyone what I say. <laughs> um, I think Bob is symbolic of a style of politics in Australia um, that is uh, all care, no responsibility, um, and all opposition and no government. Um, and I, that's what I experienced over those 17 days um, where we all were fully exposed to each other. We were closed, but we, you know, our characters, our values, our, you know, everything was getting examined um, and we got to very quickly get to know what motivated and drove each of us. Um... uh, I couldn't have found a more solid person than the one sitting next well, to me. Well, you could have, actually, because he kept walking out of meetings and leaving you with Well, it. he did. <laughs> leaving me with Bob Catter. And it was only, a, <laughs> it was only after that I realised why he was doing that. <laughs> um, but with Bob, uh, we chose at the start to establish a process. It didn't matter where we all ended up at the end. We chose at the start that we would go through that process together, stand next to each other uh, and and ride it out together. Uh, to have lost him on that last day, for him to go off um, in full knowledge of what we were going to do uh, and then game us behind the scenes, I thought was incredibly disappointing and you know, something you sadly remember forever. Mm.
1: Three days after you um, bestowed that power on Julie, Julie Gillard to form the government, um, she offered you the Ministry for Regional Development, and you describe it you, you, as as a surprise. You turned it down, and you say it remains your greatest personal regret. <laughs> Please tell us more about this, and both you know why you regret it, but also how you think things may have been different if perhaps you'd accepted it?
0: Yeah, look, I, you, you go into politics to contribute and um, the, the wrestle, I think, for people who are on the crossbench is uh, at what level can you contribute um, and whether you can contribute to executive government. Uh, I wasn't settled on that decision because I didn't think that was going to be part of um, the post election narrative I just it, it wasn 't really on the radar, even though I do fundamentally believe an executive government should be formed from you know the talent in the room, regardless of which political party um, and i know i 've been madly criticized for that as um, it being a silly idea, um, but I do think as an ideal that 's one that w- we should look for in our parliamentary democracy. So I hadn't ruled it out, I hadn't ruled it in. Um, When the conversation started and the offer was actually made, it really did test um, where I sat in the political process. I think at the time I was... I was very conscious of being too closely aligned to Labor, as silly as that sounds in hindsight, because I think it didn't matter anyway. Everyone was aligning uh, us with Labor as best they could in, in that moment. So in hindsight, the difference on whether I'd taken the job or not was pretty minimal, and you could have contributed at that higher level, I think. And probably, you know, you don't really know in, in these reflections, um, But uh, I think what we did at times, without blowing our own trumpets, was save Labor from itself on a lot of decisions over those three years and to have been able to get in at an executive level um, and get into that process uh, as early as possible, um, I I think some of those decisions over that three-year period might have been a little different um, and, um, you know things may have played out differently. But it's all hindsight. No-one really knows. Um, And so it's just a whimsical thought in a book and um, you've picked up on it. (laughs) (coughs) Tony,
1: what did she offer you?
2: (laughs) I had Julie Bishop sit on my couch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Attorney-General, (coughs)
2: perhaps? No, no, no. I I wasn't interested in... Any position. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. all the more the, appealing I would have thought. Yeah I, yeah, I think Rob touched on it there a moment ago. That in that circumstance you have the capacity to influence a lot of things. And uh, we did save labour from itself on a number of occasions, I think. The, you
1: know, That's just terrifying that you yeah, both no, say I that, uh, isn't it? Yeah.
2: But uh, yeah. Gillard was dealing with this very odd-shaped monster, in a sense, the a minority parliament to start, which, which is difficult. She could handle that, no, no problem in my view. But then she had the brilliance of Abbott in terms of his no to everything. And, and then Murdoch on top of that and some associates. Uh, and then Rudd. So you had all of these people. So, you know, people can say, oh, they look back and say, well, she should have done and she didn't do this well and whatever else. But every time she made a move, and she wasn't... It's not a brilliant marketer of, of policy, but every time she made a move, the Ruddite people would come out and white-hat it and then that would feed the others. And it was uh, uh, to her great credit, and I think Robert would agree with this, we had a lot to do with her and never... We never saw her angry. Mm. Uh, We never saw her get emotional with her... I saw her cry once, but I never saw her get uh, emotional with her staff or anything. She uh, treated uh, her staff in the way people would think you should treat your staff, whereas Kevin Rudd treated his staff like, you know, peasants. Quite terrible. Um, So uh, I I have, you know, full regard for... uh, Uh, for Julia Gillard and the way she handled that that particular circumstance.
1: There's a very interesting little vignette in your book, Rob, about meeting Prime Minister Rudd for the first time. The day before, he was ousted and Hmm. you say it had been a long wait to meet him and you went to his office and the two of you, I think, were wearing RM Williams and had your feet up on the coffee table and I thought there's never actually been more direct evidence that this guy did not see it coming, that to spend an hour uh, with an independent who he'd paid no attention to in the the years previously and uh, be... But you you got along with him all right?
0: Yeah, look, I found him fine um, personally and he came up to Port Macquarie on several occasions and, um, you know, he wrote a pretty substantial... He was on the health tour when I got elected on a by-election... And so developed a relationship with him because Port Macquarie Hospitals had a whole privatization history over the last decade, so um you know it's quite a center of policy thought in in health services. He spent a couple of days there, um got to know him pretty well, and I always found him fine, even though I endorsed Tony's comments about how he treated staff. I saw that on several occasions, and the the whole wide ending campaign in and around Julia Gillard over that period where Labor basically killed itself is is my reading of those three years of, of their government. Um, but, uh, yeah, I always found him enjoyable company. We had the feet on the table in that first meeting. I did have Julia Gillard before I knew her huff out as I went in. Um, I wasn't quite sure what was going on, and, it was again, it was only um, in hindsight that I realised I was actually naively sitting in the centre of... Um, this coup, <laughs> 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 talking about Afghanistan and all sorts of interesting <laughs> issues with um, the Prime Minister for the 24 hours um, subsequent. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you believe now, when you look back on, on what you tried to, what you set out to achieve in those 17 days, the decisions that you, you based Um, you know, the the, the policies, the strengthening of parliamentary reforms, the whole idea of a a stable government, when you look back, do you think that you strengthened in a lasting way our institution of government? You go. You go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is such a good question. Um, In one sense, no... I don't, Um, and because I say that because of um, probably the key decision that had me fall over the line was pricing carbon Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, I thought that was an important move for our country as part of an international um, obligation and for future generations as well, and I still think that. Um, So that was a really important issue uh, to progress in that 43rd Parliament. And, you know, it's gone. So that's, that's a lament that so there wasn't the, more of a MBM. bipartisan effort. Mm. yet. and, well, I think Tony might drive, drive that one. I do say yes in another sense, though, and that is, um, you know, looking out at a room of what looks to be over 200 people, and it's more of a cultural um, change. I hope we showed that a parliament can function... <laughs> Um, in a multi-party or a a mixed um, arrangement of government. Um, And the statistics back that up, and everyone would have heard them before, about more legislation, more rejection of legislation, more committee work, more private members, um, bills and speeches, so more inclusion of everyone within the parliamentary process. And while the institution at the moment, I think, is going through a bit of blowback to that 43rd Parliament. Uh, I hope culturally what we're seeing in rooms like this one is um, a bit of the legacy and a bit of a want for that idea of, um, you know, an inclusive parliamentary process rather than a combative one. One of the things that...
2: One of the things that was said at the start of the 43rd Parliament, a hung parliament, this will be chaotic, nothing will get done, there will be political paralysis. Uh, All of those things were mentioned. If you look back at the 43rd Parliament, uh, there were probably five or six very significant reforms. And if I look, remember back through Howard's years, the GST was probably the the reform of, of, of those years. The 43rd Parliament had the National Broadband Network, of course, and now there's been some tampering with that, but that'll get back on track sometime. you think...? Uh, the climate change issue, you, you can't defy gravity, so climate change will come back uh, in terms of uh, market mechanism, etc. cetera. Uh, Gonski, critical in terms of um, educating children, takes out the, that 40-odd-year debate of... Uh, the systemic system, the public system, and the private system, the money followed, the needs of the child, you know, good policy. Um, The NDIS, uh, the Murray-Darling, for instance, uh, 100 years of majority of parliaments wrestling with it and nothing happening. The Royal Commission into Child Abuse, Uh, very significant. Would not have happened if Rudd had been Prime Minister or uh, Tony Abbott uh, or a majority government. Uh, it, it would not have happened. So there's these very significant large issues. One of the problems with that, the government and the uh, press that surrounded it, was that the marketing wasn't uh, wasn't brilliant, and in fact it didn't exist quite often. But <coughs> the outcomes of the parliament, and Rob mentioned it there a moment ago too. One of the very significant things in a hung parliament is that the executive doesn't have control of the committees, and what that actually did was empower all of the members of the committees, whether they were in the government or the opposition or independent or green. It actually gave them a constructive focus that they could make a difference in terms of legitimate policy issues. And uh, that came through very, very clearly in relation to the Murray-Darling, where people were able to say, I can make a difference here. I don't have to object to him because he's got a different guernsey on. And (coughs) to to me, that was a very important part of... uh, of of the difference of taking the power from the executive and actually giving it to the representatives it's uh, very significant
1: i don't share your optimism about several probably four of those six major reforms and i would say that's the difference with the gst that we don't have any real climate change policy at the moment the mbn i don't know will it come back uh, in in the, the with the substance that it was the, 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 visi- the vision that, that, it, that it began with, uh, Gonski, NDIS. I mean, I think these are very fragile, vulnerable policies that absolutely are not embedded with the same uh, weight that, that the GST was at the same stage. Well, that'll,
2: that'll very much depend on the, on the people. If, if And that's the point that Rob's making. The power is actually with the people. But you it's know, a very nasty want those to stay, political
1: culture, stay. isn't it? How do you actually make something... Let's just take the NBN. We could take any one of those, but let's just take the NBN, and I know it's something both of you really cared about, uh, particularly with your rural um, uh, constituencies. How do you have a vision like that as a Prime Minister and make it stick these days?
0: We are stuck in the mud <laughs> as a country. Um, there is no question that... Um, The the intellectual challenge for this country is how do we progress reform in an uber-adversarial environment, which is what you're talking about, but also in an environment where we now have uh, so many people, regardless of politicians, so many people with skin in the game of unsustainable policy settings. And, you, you know, you mentioned tax, you mentioned the GST, but things like housing reform are proving absolutely impossible at the moment. And I think this can only go one way. We, you know, it is unsustainable, and so it has to become sustainable, um, and it's either going to do it the hard way or the easy way. I would prefer the easy way, and I think um, the major parties have to find a way to reach some sort of national national accord on three or four of these key items and just say, we're not going to kill each other over these ones Um, Mm, and no-one's going to gain political benefit if it passes on your watch. Um, You know, I think there's got to be some sort of establishment of that process. Otherwise, frankly, um, I think we're stuffed. (laughs)
2: And the the, the two issues there that stand out were two uh, issues that, um, Rob and I both supported at the start, climate change, NBN, they were the wrong issues to have the classic d- political division on, and Abbott absolutely preyed on that. NBN, the objections to NBN had nothing to do with the technology, the fibre to the harm. It was an extension of, uh, I- of the uh, coalition's rhetoric about Labor's waste and mismanagement, which had come off the back end of the global financial crisis. Uh, spending, uh, they grabbed hold of that and said oh here 's another example of more waste and mismanagement. In, in the aged care sector, for instance, if you use the technology of fibre to the home, that can nearly pay for the NBN in one example and uh, because of the baby bubble the baby boomer bubble coming through the system. So the, the, I think it will come back uh, because I think, I think we'll demand it comes back. It, uh, it, it does a whole range of things and has very positive uh, uh, outcomes in the country particularly, but also very much in the cities. And uh, it's the technology of this century. We're going to go and build more freeways to nowhere and all this other s- nonsense... Uh, infrastructure. I'm going to be the infrastructure Prime Minister. Well, the infrastructure Prime Minister is is in technology now,
0: and the NBN is a very important component to that. I might add one other thing. It, it does feel like we're preaching to the converted a bit. I think Melbourne is on to... You know, it's becoming a bit of a capital of ...political thought in Australia um, and... Becoming. You know, <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> you invited us here. That's a good start. <laughs> I did warn you about them. <laughs> but really, you know, trying to break the... ...giving the two parties the choice. You know, you either work together and resolve some of these issues... ...or we'll bust you open. Um, And I think that is actually democracy in action and, you know, we're either going to end up with one of these Scandinavian-type parliaments where, you know, anyone who's watched Borgen, you know, we're going to have all sorts of political parties uh, involved in forming governments and that's healthy, or the two parties are going to work out they're doing themselves enormous damage and start to reach out across that divide and build some bipartisanship on some key issues. Both of those paths are going to see these issues back on the agenda because they are good public policy and good public policy will win the day. Well, we'd better talk
1: about the bloke in charge at the moment <laughs> to see whether any of this is actually remotely possible. Now um, you go first. I don't. want to talk about... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I, just in case, you know, it's sort of, you know, fading from your mind, your feelings about dear Tony Abbott... Uh, I'll give a few quotes from your (laughs) own words. Um, This is from you, Tony. Um, His tendency was to see how he could buy us with projects in the electorates. By week two, this is of the deliberation period, he was unsure. By week three, he panicked... The phone calls he was leaving were more desperate. He begged for the job in the latter stages of the process, virtually grovelling and offering the moon and the stars. I felt sorry for him. He was quite lost. And uh, a couple of pages later, as I left Abbott's office, I heard the tinkle of stilettos on the wooden floor of the corridor. It was Julie Bishop. She sensed all was not travelling too well for her team. She said to me, Tony's not handling this very well, is he?
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, Rob, I mean, you're a little bit kinder. Always. I was. Um, I was not, you know, enthused to see that uh, you noticed every time you went into his office the same book on his desk, <laughs> and the book's title was, do you, do you
0: remember? I don't know, it was a Paul Ritchie book. Yes, yeah,
1: Stay On Message. Yeah. And,
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: oh, and you write, Rob, curious and frustrated about his negotiating style or lack of it. Uh, uh, the door is open, the mood is civil, but nothing is progressing. He always indicates he's available if required, but doesn't pursue Anything.
0: You've answered it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> where, do we, where do we go then? I mean, how can you be even remotely optimistic about this future? And you too, Tony, in a, in a different way. You talk about the MBN. I mean, are you talking about light years in time or anything in, in, in sort of current lifetimes where we might get the politics we deserve?
2: It was one of the issues that really did concern us, that because of the, this very negative attitude of, of, uh, of Tony Abbott, that we were going to enter a, a decade of payback. And I think we're seeing a bit of that now in terms of the, the, the Senate, how Labor's relating back to Abbott and the Senate. You know, Abbott was against everything. The constitutional recognition of Aboriginals, the recognition of uh, local government, he just he didn't want to go to the 2013 election agreeing with Labor on anything, so it's going to be very difficult for people to give him any wriggle room uh, in terms of the politics of uh, of payback. And in our view, uh, Turnbull was probably the only one in the building that could actually change that uh, dimension f- for some years. It, my, my uh, private view, which I'm just about to make public, <laughs> is is that M- Abbott won't see out the, the current uh, parliament. The, um, I, I think the greater minds in the Liberal Party will will actually see that they're at risk of losing.
1: Will it be Malcolm Turnbull or a lady uh, in stilettos?
2: Well. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I'd, I'd suggest it probably be Malcolm, but that might be the kiss of death <laughs> for, for Malcolm. But, uh, but I think they'll recognise that uh, something uh, has to be done in, in terms of uh, the leadership. You can't, you can't go to one side of politics and expect the nation to follow. You know, there's a whole range of, of other things outside climate change and N, NBN. Some of the international issues, are, you know, it's appalling... Uh, some of the things that are happening. And people in the Liberal Party, and we've got very good friends in the Liberal Party, they they, they see this themselves. And once the heat comes on in terms of their longevity in their seats, uh, what Xenophon and others, or well, what Nick's doing in South Australia, for instance, <coughs> and don't underestimate that in terms of the capacity for people to start reversing in, in, terms, in terms of some of their policies. So... Uh, I think we're going to see a very, very interesting six months in terms of how the government
1: operates. Well, this is no small thing for you to um, uh, make this confession uh, public, uh, particularly as somebody who is your mantra is stability of leadership and of, of government. Do you you're saying you think that that change will happen? Are you also saying that you think it should?
2: I think I think it should. Uh, I think the. The nation's a bit more important than the individuals, and the governance, more so than the government, uh, is very important. I don't think the current prime minister has fully comprehended that our parliament has two houses of parliament. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I'm serious about this because he's not actually dealing with that other house. He hasn't. He hasn't really come to grips with how you've got to get things through both houses. And uh, I don't think the Labor Party's doing itself ever any favours either on some of these things, but uh, but I can understand why they're doing it, because this enormous Dr No that they faced during the, those Gillard uh, years, so they're, they're going to uh, make him squirm as much as they possibly can. I don't agree with that, and Rob talked about it there a moment ago, but, but that's the reality we're dealing with. So, in terms of getting some of these things back on the agenda, you've got to have a circuit breaker. And I think Turnbull's probably the circuit breaker in that party. I don't know who is in the other one.
0: Uh, well, look, I'm a bit more reserved on oh, the future. Oh, don't be. No. Well,
1: Confess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as wise as
0: Tony. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, there's a noticeable gear change going on within a Liberal national government in Australia. Um, and I'm not sure whether it's a gear change that favours the current Prime Minister's style, Um, he has made his whole approach one of crash or crash through, you know, never negotiate with anyone, never negotiate with the crossbenchers, his way or the highway, every cliche you can think of. Um, We're 18 months into it, um, and really not much of his forward agenda has been achieved at all, And so you can now see the language softening to one of a conversation. You know, we want to think Mm. about things. We want to bring in other parties. Chris Pine's now putting a team together to talk with the crossbench Mm. about higher education reform on the third attempt. Um, And so... And
1: stay on
0: message. Yeah, and so I actually think um, the somewhat, um, you know, to use Costello's language, the morbid joke of the next election will be uh, the great olive branch from the government to the opposition. I think they will have a tax package, a future of federation package, um, and some of these other issues that are in the Harper review on competition, the Murray review on financial services, Um, they will have a reform platform, but they will not move unless the Labor Party is with them. And even today, with the states meeting on Friday, if anyone's watched any media today, you can see that language uh, that every minister who's been speaking today has said, we're up for reform, but the states have got to agree and the opposition's got to agree. I reckon we're starting to see a re-election platform in that soft language, and the huge irony is they were elected as a team of, you know, the hard language of no compromise. What Australians do with that, I don't know. <laughs> who, who do you think would be best placed
1: to lead them with this new um,
0: <laughs> 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 uh, <you> know, LAUGHTER <laughs> I don't like changes in direction in people's language purely based on the moment. So, um, frankly, I don't have a lot of time for any of them based on the that they put us through um, to achieve their goal of getting government and now for them to find out 18 months into it that all their language and all their chest-beating was just rubbish. Um, So... um, (laughs) You shouldn't
1: have applauded him. You should have made him sweat that out <laughs> and answer the question.
0: But I got out of giving you a name. For now. We'll see. <laughs> see if we
1: get a minute at the end. But a very interesting answer. Yeah. What I will delays. say, though, yeah. is
0: Tony touched on it as well, that the Labor Party now in this environment, I think, looks to be a really more than a normal opposition player to watch. What Bill Shorten does in the next six months will pretty well define him uh, and uh, define the direction for Australia. And it's really rare that an opposition leader has that power, but the government is almost giving him that power by their their shift in direction. Now, what he does with that, uh, I think, is his challenge, but also will shape a lot of what we're talking about as far as the future direction for Australia.
1: Um, the other party in the mix, the great minority party of which you both have, um, well, more than flirted, I suppose, particularly you, Rob, is the National Party, and uh, I mean, I, I'm sort of at a at a loss to kind of understand the National Party and its role. <laughs> in Australian... I laughed. ...politics... <laughs> no <one else> <laughs> I get you uh, <laughs> uh, ...these days. It, it seems to me a sort of socialist, agrarian party that it is completely at odds with the Liberal Party. Uh, and I just don't get it. So, Tony, you can start with enlightening me.
2: Well, I, I suffer from the same problem. But, uh, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it either, but what I do get, and what we, I think, successfully did in terms of the uh, agreements with Gillard, was put regional Australia back into the political equation. And I hope what we have done there is enlighten people, uh, particularly country people, that they can be more strategic in the way they vote. They don't have to vote one way all the time. Because what's happened traditionally is that they're taken for granted by both sides uh, when, they, uh, when they do that. Now, I've made the point in my book, which you'll all have to buy, of course, but, um, <laughs> that 30% of the vote reside in regional Australia. And there hasn't been a parliament since federation where a country member hasn't held the balance of power. But they've been subsumed in the city-based majority parties, in the Labor Party, Liberal Party. Uh, Etc. So, the aberration that two regional members uh, having a having key positions in a, in the 43rd Parliament could be an aberration that occurred at every election, uh, because the city is roughly split. Even in the recent New South Wales election, the Liberal seats and Labor seats were all virtually equal. It was the national seats that um, boosted the uh, numbers to give uh, the Baird government, government, to, uh, uh, that there again, that's very much in the hands of regional people. And I'd hope that out of that hung parliament, people actually look specifically at some of these policies because they are in contradiction to what mm. uh, the country people particularly look at. The, the NBN's a classic example. Why would the National Party walk away from that at the federal level when it's, it's the very piece of infrastructure that can change the dynamics of where people live, in, not just in the country but and, and operate their businesses, not just in the country, but but in terms of the, the nation. And uh, they've turned their back on it uh, under this guise that costs too much.
1: The person to listen to on this is, of course, Alan Jones. It's just, he's just absolutely... You can't believe the things that he says. Um, but, of course, in having a, a, an understanding... Of, of some of these issues, which in, in a city Melbourne, uh, I certainly don't, but uh, I hear him saying things that are completely all over the place. Uh, in, you know. <laughs> no. uh, once again, Rob, what's
0: your take on it? Um, look, if, if anyone wants a fun night out, go to a National Party branch meeting <laughs> um, because you will see a meeting that is agrarian, it is socialist, you know, it's anti-trade and all the international money and some of those um, issues of... Um, quasi-xenophobia and almost Pauline Hanson-esque and, you know, in amongst that are some really lovely people. Um, (laughs) And that shouldn't be forgotten Hmm. (laughs) Uh, quite seriously. Um, But my read of the National Party is they're not one party. Um, you've, they're a state-based organisation. Uh, so in the Northern Territory, there's the Country Liberal Party. In New South Wales, there's still a National Party state branch. Victoria, there's a small one. Um, Western Australia, there, there wasn't one. Once small ones emerged um, and playing their cards pretty wisely with Brendan Grills and the Royalties for Regions and everything going on in WA. Um, the, the big move, though, was Queensland. As soon as Queensland... Uh, it was about five years ago, amalgamated the Liberal and the National Party into the one brand. That's sort of the mothership of the National Party. Um, And so Mm. they really dropped the agrarian socialism and just became part of the right-wing army of the Liberal Party um, from regional areas. And for me, that was the key to the Abbott rise against carbon pricing and beating Malcolm Turnbull in that party ballot by one. That amalgamation in Queensland has actually had a significant impact on politics and policy in Australia. Um, And I think explains, for me at least, um, what is a new direction for the National Party, not only through their geographic, you know, the, the regional and rural party that we know for the past 50 years, but even where they started, Ironically, their name was the Progressives, um, and I think they've come an enormous way to be the arch-conservative wing of the Liberal Party today.
1: Mm. It seems to me that country people could, could be a really dynamic uh, force in Australian politics if there was a bit more something, a bit more... Uh, well, a bit less dependence, a, a little less assumption uh, about about how power is created. It doesn't always land on your lap on election mm. night. Sometimes you have to see spaces for it and go out and get it. But it, it would seem to me that that's the single demographic um, that is sitting there waiting to, to take it. Well, the
2: Cathy McGowan's a good example in Indi, uh, where community-based uh, politics is provided... Competition and uh, the, the great thing in politics is competition. Safe seats aren't rewarded anywhere; then ne- they're neglected. The battle takes place in the marginal seats, and normally it takes place in the western suburbs of the major cities. Uh, and the, the policy initiatives are directed at that. Very rarely is, does it take place in the western districts of somewhere, you know, one of the states. Uh, um, that that's the message that I've been preaching is that there's a, there's an opportunity for those people to be much more dynamic uh, and strategic in terms of what they uh, accept in, at the at the ballot box. And we saw some of that happening in northern New South Wales in the recent election there, where the Greens actually won a seat from the Nats. Uh, that will over time take them out of that particular region because the Liberals will come back in when the Greens depart, and that uh, the Nats will not win those seats probably again. So there's, there's a real ch- The challenge is with people. You know, I, I was criticised for being a supporter of climate change and a pricing mechanism, etc. I'm a farmer, uh, our son's a farmer. Out of all the people in Australia that are going to be impacted, by uh, climate change, if the scientists are right, and I believe they are, the the first ones are going to be the the food producers. And what do we have in terms of leadership in the parliament, the National Farmers' Federation, that just absolutely disappeared behind the tree when all this was on? Didn't want to get into the debate, talk the short-term stuff, or Abbott might throw Gillard out, you know, don't do anything. They betrayed their people. Now, the National Party reflect that. They've actually betrayed their people in relation to probably one of the most significant issues of the longevity of those very people. And, and I think that's disgraceful. I think there's really uh, a horrid way to, to look at people and the way Rudd engineered uh, uh, Turnbull in question time, Rudd actually created the move, along with the Queensland thing that Rob's talking about, but Rudd actually created that move to Abbott he just He had the opportunity, this great moral challenge that Kevin used to talk about. He had the opportunity to put his arm around Turnbull and move forward with a mission trading scheme. He couldn 't resist the jab because of this little nasty group of uh, nationals that were trying to uh, uh, you know, bury turnbull and uh, that 's a very significant point in our history, uh, our political history on on that one particular issue. Mm.
1: If you have a question for Rob Oakeshott or Tony Windsor, put your hand up, and if somebody puts a microphone in it, start talking. (laughs) Is it great? Yep. Hello. Hello.
0: Hello. I think something that I really appreciate about the two of you is the respect in the way that you speak about Prime Minister Gillard. How do you think that history... Will history get kinder to her than we were at the time? And by contrast, do you think that history will have a different impression of Prime Minister Rudd? And will it forget just how popular he was at his his time in the public? Uh, As I think a lot of us would like Prime Minister Gillard to be remembered more positively than she was at the time of her demise. Mm. you go. I have a real problem with making deities out of politicians, all of us, um, you know, certainly me included, maybe not Tony. Um, <laughs> uh, so Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott, they all have their faults. You know, It's a human business we're in. Um, but I do think uh, the period when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister... Um, from my time in politics and 12 years in state politics and five years federally, she got the roughest deal that I saw of all prime ministers or premiers. Um, And I do think being a woman, um, even having red hair, um, and, you know, some of her university days was floating around on the internet and being used as a weapon of war, not being married, being honest about a religion or lack of. um, These were all used to place question marks about her ability to um, make policy decisions. And I've got to say, through my own eyes, um, the perception could not be further from the truth. Um, Her dealing with my children, um, was quite extraordinary. My kids went to Kirribilli House on a couple of occasions and just about tore the place apart. Um, and I guess it wasn't hers, so she didn't worry too much. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry, taxpayers.
1: <laughs> she, she probably knew Tony was moving in pretty soon, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> but she was lovely with the kids, you know, and was very accommodating with a father and mother of four kids under 10. The one decision that I think is her greatest legacy and shows the greatest love of children, Tony mentioned it before, the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse. Mm -hmm. Where were all these religious married uh, fathers who were the former prime ministers, and not criticising any of them personally, uh, but by comparison to someone who was supposed to not love kids, and make bad decisions because she didn't have any, because she was so-called barren, um, you know, uh, I think her policy decisions uh, stand the test of time. And as well, uh, I think the comments about her father, who died through that process, uh, were outrageous and played to an audience. Uh, There were references references to that in Parliament uh, on the back of those comments from Alan Jones on radio, Um, You know, some of that was nasty, vindictive and really dragged politics into a place that no-one wanted it to go and she unfairly wore a lot of the consequences of that um, in people wanting just to have a spring change and a bit of a clean-out.
2: I think history will judge her reasonably well Um, and I think it, it will reflect on policy initiatives, and as I mentioned earlier, there's some groundbreaking initiatives uh, in relation uh, to her particular period. It's very interesting to actually work with her. Normally, if you work with someone, and I hold Rob in the same esteem, actually. Normally, if you work with someone in a sort of pressure cooker environment, over time, you you see their faults, and they start to grate on you. It's a bit like going to boarding school. At the end of the term, your best friend's your enemy. but. Um, <laughs> But I didn't have that experience with Gillard and I didn't with Oakshot either. Uh, I think as time went on, I think we had more and more respect uh, for one another and uh, I, I have enormous respect for her. Uh, I think she dealt with a whole range of circumstances very, very well. And Rob's quite right. We've all got our problems and she has them too. Uh, but to me, she was given responsibility uh to head up the country for that period of time. She did that. In terms of our arrangements at a personal level, uh, she was true to her word. I never sensed that she was trying to get out of something, particularly as time was running out in the three years. And in fact, the book that you're all going to buy, (laughs) there's a story in there that she didn't have to do because she... She was on the edge of the precipice about to go, but she made the effort to fulfil a, a commitment uh, to what was called the water trigger, which is very important in terms of coal seam gas and those things at the Commonwealth level. So I have enormous regard
1: for her and, uh, and I wish her well and she, history will judge her well. And he says all that and he has never seen the misogyny speech. You, you would love it, Tony, you've got to see it, right? Yeah, he's oh, never the, the he's never seen it. Never even seen uh, a recording
0: of it. We were a little bit busy at the time. Mm. Uh, <laughs> mm.
2: Rob and I actually went... While the misogyny speech was on, Abbott was moving, a, a no-confidence motion in the speaker, Mr Slipper. Rob had gone out to grab something to eat and I was sitting there listening to this and I walked out and we bumped into each other and had about five or six words and said, we've got to go and see Slipper, which we did... Walked in on the monitor, the television monitor, the Prime Minister's in there, uh, the misogyny speech was on. We sat with Peter Slipper and said, Look, we're going to be asked to vote on you in a minute, and we think it's best that you make the moment and retire, resign, rather than be sacked by the body of the Parliament, which he did at seven o'clock that night. So I didn't, I, we weren't in there when mm-hmm. it was on. Mm. Mm. There is, you know, YouTube.
0: <laughs> we don't yes, have NBN you don't
1: have NBN yeah.
2: <laughs> please explain
3: <laughs> oh, as an inner city type person a bit sort of left of centre um, I was actually surprised how much I agreed with things you were saying while you were up there in Canberra and, doing your thing. Um, but... Is that I a compliment it,
0: or an insult?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take it either way. But I do find it a bit hard to forgive Tony Winter for not standing again, though, because that means that complete numbskull Barnaby Joyce is in there in the Parliament, and it would have been nice for him to be sidelined. I reckon he could have a, a career as a stand-up comedian or something where he wouldn't do any harm, you know. But anyway, my, my question though is... I'm just sort of wondering if the two of you are going to exploit your notoriety in Australia to further some cause, and I suppose in particular I'm thinking of climate change, because it's just so desperate that things actually happen on that front, and really quickly.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's been 18 months now and since we both left politics and we've both gone our own directions. Tony's back farming. I'm doing a little bit of Pacific Island work with the United Nations Development Program. Um, So that's occupying my time and as well as being a father at home. Um, It's a question that gets, I don't know whether you get that question a lot, whenever I have these sort of, not this big, but (laughs) these sort of discussions, um, it's a question that comes up and it's a really hard one to answer. Um, because um, I I feel like I've put my skin in the game, done everything I can, Um, we've ended up where we are. I'd be willing to do more, but I'm not quite sure myself where that place is because the game seems to have in some way moved on and the organisations that you may want to get involved with are probably dealing with a government that um, the last person they want to hear from is me or Tony. (laughs) Um, So I don't think the moment's quite right now. Um, I do make a suggestion in the book, though, and it's a bit of a hindsight suggestion, on if we were to go again on carbon pricing, uh, I think uh, a smarter strategy is not to have a national debate around a gas. Um, A smarter strategy is to have a national debate about biodiversity loss. Uh, and to really make um, the conversation, which is the political term of the moment, um, around the real chance of loss of the koala species in our lifetime, You know, the, the loss of um, uh, biodiversity corridors and the opportunities that then come with carbon pricing as just one tool in building these corridors and protecting Australian native species. Politically, I think that's an easier conversation for the future than all this colourless, odourless gas and you know the 0.0000 whatever and all of that that was really difficult politically to respond to. Um, so that's uh, something I put in the book for anyone in the future. Um, happy to participate in what I do consider um, something that is not going to go away, and I think our sovereign interest is to participate internationally. Uh, And if we don't, we're going to do ourselves enormous environmental damage, but also economic damage when the price shock does come um, and we're not ready for it. Um, So I'm here, ready to help, just not sure whether anyone out there is um, currently listening.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I intend to be right in the space. I think it's absolutely critical. uh, And I am involved with various groups that are out there And Rob made a very significant point. What we don't want to do by our participation is be right out in front of it. Because it's a red rag to a bull when it comes to some of the people in the current government. The the objective should be to assist where possible to have both sides of Parliament accept a better way forward than the one we've got at at present and... uh, Uh, whether it be from an agricultural perspective. And I was in Melbourne only a few months ago at a a meeting in the town hall, a very, you know, a small group of people talking about this very issue. And uh, um, I'll I'll be there as much as I can in terms of uh, trying to add some weight to it.
1: Um, these guys answer questions properly, and because of that, we... Not 17 minutes, though, mind <laughs> yeah. you. You've done well always tonight. we going to come. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are out of time, but if you buy a book, you'll be able to have a 17-minute conversation with them both. <laughs> Windsor's Ways by Tony Windsor. The independent member for Line is by Rob Oakshop. Buy them together. They're twins. Don't separate them. They're not identical. You'll get a different story. They're really, really great. One of them's published by MUP, the other one by Alan Unwin. And thank you to the Avenue Bookshop uh, for being down there tonight and uh, flogging them for these gentlemen. They really are interesting uh, reads, and uh, especially to read them both. There are some really... Um, Small tales in them that you both tell. You get, you get the, like the pizza night, you know, with the with the, the you treasury. Everyone? If you, yeah. <laughs> you haven't read each other's books. No, I haven't oh. read Tony's yet. <laughs> oh, <there you> <laughs> uh, please thank these uh, two independents for coming here tonight.
0: That's all for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with lawyer Julian Burnside and Tom Porteous of Human Rights Watch, Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and you'll find videos of these discussions plus a whole bunch of other talks at WheelerCenter.com. Thanks for listening.